In the late teens and early 1920s, radium was all the rage. From creams to wearables, many considered the chemical a sort of cosmetic cure-all. Companies even painted it on watch faces to make them glow. To keep up with demand, the United States Radium Corporation, or USRC, opened a watch factory in Orange, New Jersey. But the plant had only been open a few years before the young women who worked there started getting sick. And we're not talking about the cold or the flu. They suffered bone-chilling pains, from anemia to pneumonia to angina, that left them bedridden. The women experienced so much agony, they thought they might be dying. Before anyone understood the extent of radium's toxicity, the chemical was eroding the very minerals of the factory workers' skeletons. Their bones were like Alka-Seltzer tablets, slowly disintegrating from the inside. By 1924, nearly a dozen women who'd worked in USRC factories were dead. Four years later, the count hit 16. And yet, the company denied that its compounds were lethal. Instead, owners tried to discredit their workers. Some shamed the sick women, saying their ailments came from syphilis. It took a lawsuit brought on by five dying radium girls, the help of the Essex County Medical Examiner, and physically exhuming the body of one of their co-workers to win their case against the USRC. In the end, the women were barely healthy enough to see a trial through, let alone use the meager settlements they received. Ultimately, they paid the price for corporate malfeasance with their lives. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is part two of our episodes on the psychology of conspiracy theories, the framework of where they come from, how they spread, and why they're so appealing. Last time, we dug into the psychological mechanics behind conspiracy theories as we examined some of history's most demonstrably false allegations, including Pizzagate and QAnon. We also discussed the violent repercussions that false narratives can have when allowed to spread. This time, we'll look at a handful of America's most salacious conspiracies that turned out to be true like when the U.S. government intentionally poisoned its citizens. Along the way, we'll examine tactics like gaslighting and blame-shifting, learning how and why some institutions got away with it. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. There's no reason not to trust the powerful institutions put in place to make our lives better until they give us reason not to. Like we said in our last episode, not all conspiracy theories are false. There's clear historical precedent for abuses of power. Take the case of the chemist's war. In the fall of 1929, the mayor of Berlin traveled from Germany to New York expecting to take in the city's sterling sights. But Mayor Gustav was aghast at what he saw. For being in the height of prohibition, the people in Manhattan were drinking an awful lot. Surprised at the debauchery, the German mayor asked his American counterpart, New York Mayor James J. Walker, when prohibition would go into effect. To which Walker explained that alcohol had been banned for almost a decade. The 18th Amendment forbade the transport and sale of liquor, and the Volstead Act outlined its penalties. But given that most of New York City still imbibed, President Herbert Hoover's noble experiment, as prohibition was called, was more of a draconian joke. New York had been hit hard by prohibition. As documentary filmmaker Ken Burns explains, before the ban, almost 75% of the state's revenue was derived from liquor taxes. While the government hoped that family-friendly industries would skyrocket, instead, chaos broke out and service industries crumbled. Restaurants boarded up their windows, saloons, cocktail bars, and lounges went out of business, sending their workers to collect unemployment. 
and through it all, a dangerous paradigm existed. While selling liquor was now illegal, drinking it wasn't. Without legitimate channels to buy liquor, Americans turned to darker avenues. Cue New York speakeasy and bootlegging operations. Men moonlighted as rabbis and pharmacists, which allowed them easier access to wine and medicinal intoxicants. Prescriptions for medicinal whiskey at 95% alcohol saw a 400% increase. Overall, there may have been up to 30,000 speakeasies and illicit lounges crisscrossing the five boroughs. As the Saturday Evening Post reported, the annual per capita liquor consumption rose from 0.02 to 1.2 gallons of alcohol. Meaning, the law intended to curb alcohol consumption actually had the opposite effect and alcohol's transition to the black market had serious consequences. Alcohol was now illegal and unregulated, so quality cascaded downwards, and consumers became less discerning. In addition to an uptick in organized crime, it's estimated that about 10,000 Americans died from toxic contraband liquor during Prohibition. The number of patients admitted for alcohol poisoning at New York's Bellevue Hospital soared. In 1926, the hospital treated 716 cases of alcohol poisoning. 61 of them died, and these deaths were not caused by chronic alcoholism. Death tolls rose because the raw materials used to make alcohol were poisonous and the changes made to increase the toxicity of the distilling process were made intentionally by the U.S. Treasury Department. The Treasury had been in charge of overseeing the manufacturing of industrial alcohol since the early 1900s. But in the late 1920s, when Prohibition wasn't working out the way the government intended, the Treasury hired chemists to add even more toxic substances to industrial alcohol. This process, called denaturing, started to heavily incorporate methanol, otherwise known as wood alcohol. Adding methanol was particularly dangerous because it was nearly impossible to taste. And chemically, it breaks down during distillation to look like formaldehyde, making it hard to identify, let alone measure. In other words, the Treasury intentionally made industrial alcohol more lethal, knowing full well they'd be poisoning any citizens who chose to imbibe. As actor Will Rogers joked, quote, Governments used to murder by the bullet only. Now it's by the court. Thanks to the Treasury, by 1927, nearly 10% of the composition of industrial alcohol was methanol. And when people started drinking it, the effects were grisly. A mild methanol-laced bender could end in any number of ways. It took roughly three drinks of liquor made from wood alcohol for someone to run the risk of going blind. According to Time magazine, by 1926, 750 New Yorkers perished from such poisoning, and hundreds of thousands more suffered irreversible injuries, including blindness and paralysis. Bootleggers tried to curb these issues by using their own chemists to remove the wood alcohol, but the science was imperfect. Rarely was the liquor made safe. As of 1926, 
98% of the bootleg liquor seized in New York contained poisonous additives. A senator from Missouri condemned the Treasury, saying it was beastly to kill people over something that had been legal less than a decade ago. As a public servant, his statement was a big deal. And when New York City's medical examiner, Charles Norris, realized what was happening, he warned the government to stop. With a body count as evidence, people were right to speak out against the abuses of federal power. But as science journalist Deborah Bloom explains, the cries of those speaking out had little effect. The Washington politicians who controlled prohibition still supported temperance. People like President Calvin Coolidge, his successor Herbert Hoover, and the heads of the Treasury Department insisted their policies were working. In fact, they flipped the narrative of the chemist's war on its head. Coming up, the Treasury Department skirts the truth. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals. Like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Is crypto perfect? Nope. But neither was email when it was invented in 1972. And yet today, we send 347 billion emails every single day. Crypto is no different. It's new. But like email, it's also revolutionary. With Kraken, it's easy to start your crypto journey with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures Inc. PDI DBA Kraken. Visit PDI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. Now, back to the story. When the U.S. Treasury intentionally made industrial alcohol more lethal during Prohibition, medical professionals, average citizens, and a handful of politicians were horrified and outraged. But to their dismay, the Treasury didn't stop. Not only did the government maintain that they weren't doing anything wrong, they made it appear that Americans who drank had knowingly brought this suffering upon themselves. Today, we might call this gaslighting. Caitlin Gibson of the Washington Post described gaslighting as a deliberate attempt to deceive someone into questioning their own perception of reality. Using this definition, let's dig into a statement made by the chairman of the Anti-Saloon League, an organization that both supported and funded prohibition. He said, 
The government is under no obligation to furnish people with alcohol that is drinkable when the Constitution prohibits it. The person who drinks this industrial alcohol is a deliberate suicide. The chairman essentially implied that anyone still drinking during Prohibition was fully aware of the deadliness of their actions, and if they chose to continue, they did so at their own risk. Technically, anyone could make the argument that drinking any form of alcohol is an inherent risk, and they wouldn't be wrong. Alcohol has detrimental side effects. But the government's attempt to deter drinking by deliberately making it more deadly was a vast departure from how it handled crime. There were already legal consequences in place for those who broke the laws of prohibition. Furthermore, as we explained, Americans had no way of differentiating between alcohol that contained methanol and alcohol that didn't. In fact, a leading chemist hired by the Treasury was caught in his own lie. First, he claimed that Americans should be able to tell if alcohol was tainted. But later, the same chemist told Time magazine that it was near impossible to distinguish without a skilled chemist and the right lab equipment. And while some cases specifically tied to wood alcohol poisoning made it to federal grand juries, they didn't fare well. Most judges concluded the U.S. Treasury wasn't responsible because the raw materials of bootleg liquor weren't originally intended for consumption. To put it in metaphor, it's like the Treasury Department intentionally buffed a hallway floor with extremely slippery varnish and put up a do-not-walk sign, fully knowing that people would ignore the warning. And when someone inevitably slipped and became injured, the government insisted they weren't culpable because the sign was there. Still, the intention remained. The government wanted to trip people up, in this case deliberately risking the lives of its citizens. Despite the fact that hundreds of people died in New York City due to poisoned alcohol, the chemist's war has faded into history. With the repeal of Prohibition in 1933, people were quick to forget that the U.S. Treasury played a hand in killing its own people. As Blom put it, it was almost as if prohibition and the poisonous measures taken to enforce it had never quite happened. The lack of government accountability following the chemist's war is worrisome, but not completely surprising. In the wake of the Great Depression and on the brink of World War II, Americans had more pressing matters. But even if they had fought for justice, it's difficult to go up against a major institution. We've discussed a number of examples on this show before, like the Radium Girls of New Jersey that started this episode. Their legal battle against the United States Radium Corporation happened during Prohibition. We've also devoted two episodes to the asbestos cover-up. In 1964, Dr. Irving Selikoff found that asbestos could cause cancer, and yet, Major asbestos corporations repeatedly denied knowledge of the mineral's toxicity. In doing so, they also denied culpability for the thousands of asbestos workers who died. It was later proven that the companies knew about the health risks for decades. In fact, some had conspired with life insurance researchers to downplay the dangers of their product, all in the name of profit. 
And while it's tempting to dismiss these examples as regretful blips in history, corporate malfeasance is a timeless theme. The pharmaceutical company Cutter Biological may not sound familiar to you, but its parent company probably will, Bayer. Like Tylenol or Advil, Bayer is a household name. It's an enormous pharmaceutical company with many subsidiaries. In 1983, Bayer released an advertisement for aspirin. The idea was to convince consumers that aspirin was a hallowed pain reliever, a drug anyone could trust. In the ad, the camera glides over a beachy island paradise as a soothing narrator speaks. It says that Bayer asked 1,000 doctors which pain reliever they'd take to a desert island, and nearly two to one chose Bayer over the runner-up. The commercial ends with the question, Doctors chose Bayer, the wonder drug. Shouldn't you? It was a strong tagline aimed at building trust, but a striking contrast to what was actually happening behind the scenes in another branch of the Bayer Empire. Let's rewind a few years to the early 80s. One of Bayer's subsidiaries, Cutter Biological, released a blood clotting drug called Factor 8. They created the drug by aggregating thousands of plasma donations from over 10,000 different donors. It was intended for patients with hemophilia. Factor A was released onto the market and consumers took the bait. But they didn't know that for a period of time, Cutter was selling two different versions of the drug. One mainly to Western Europe and the States, and the other to countries in Central America and Asia. Both versions relied on the blood plasma from donors, but one potentially contained plasma carrying HIV. In the early 1980s, there was no clear screening protocol for blood donations. Thousands of people gave blood, some of whom didn't know they were HIV positive at the time. Now, to be clear, the responsibility was on the pharmaceutical companies to set up safe screening protocols, not on those giving blood. But those safety nets had clearly not been in place. According to CBS News, Cutter Biological ignored federal instructions to not recruit prisoners, drug users, and at-risk gay men for the Factor VIII blood samples. By the summer of 1982, the Centers for Disease Control determined there was sufficient evidence that Factor VIII was making hemophiliacs sick. And six months later, by January 1983, Cutter was privy to this information. One of the lab's plasma directors said, quote, There is strong evidence to suggest that HIV is passed on to other people through plasma products. About a year later, the companies started heat-treating their new version of the Factor VIII concentrate, which largely eliminated the virus from the product. But rather than pull the earlier units from circulation, Cutter continued distributing the older Factor VIII, as in the contaminated, non-treated version. And they specifically sold these to Asia and Latin America. As for the new heat-treated units, those were primarily sold within the U.S. and in Europe. According to a later investigation by the New York Times, this went on for over a year. The simple reason being that if Cutter pulled the harmful version from the market, they'd be left with a stockpile of unusable medicine. 
or rather, a stockpile of sunk costs. As lawyer Michael Baum explained, Cutter needed to get the return for what they invested. Meaning that Bayer and Cutter Biological were more concerned with losing money than infecting people with a lifelong autoimmune disease. Coming up, another corporate conspiracy skirts the blame. Now, back to the story. The decision of Cutter Biological to distribute two different versions of its Factor VIII concentrate cost lives. According to the New York Times, over 100 patients in Hong Kong and Taiwan, and more in Malaysia, Singapore, Japan, and Argentina, contracted HIV from the first non-treated version of the drug. When Bayer's ethics came into question, the parent company tried to shift the blame. They said it was the country's fault for using early versions of the drug, blaming it on logistical issues like a slow approval process. Later reporting found otherwise. According to a 2003 investigative story by The New York Times, quote, an official at Taiwan's health department said that Cutter had not applied for permission to sell the new, safer medicine until July 1985, about a year and a half after it began doing so in the United States. The facts and the excuses didn't add up. But in the 80s, people living in the United States and Western Europe barely heard about any of this, which was intentional. The scandal was meticulously kept out of the public eye. When a representative from the FDA's blood unit found out about Bayer's action, he said the best way to remedy the situation was to solve it quietly, quote, without alerting Congress, the medical community, and the public. In other words, cover it up. And unfortunately, even the reporting that happened years later continued the trend of downplaying. Some could argue the coverage was even misleading. In 2003, a New York Times headline read, Two paths of Bayer drug in 80s. Riskier one steered overseas. Riskier, not deadlier. Meanwhile, reporters in Europe covered the incident more bluntly. For example, a 2008 German documentary was titled Deadly Sale, How Bayer Imported AIDS into Asia. In 2011, Bayer apparently settled a decades-long lawsuit with the hemophiliacs who had contracted HIV or developed AIDS from the medicine. And still, it wasn't covered as a major news story in the United States. One lonely CBS News journalist wrote about it, stating that if you lived in the States, you'd never know that Bayer just paid tens of millions of dollars to end a three-decade-long scandal. Despite the settlement, Bayer claimed that, quote, the company accepts no responsibility in this case and continues to insist it has always acted responsibly and ethically. To be fair, a settlement isn't a guilty verdict, but it's a pretty good indicator of guilt. If Bayer thought they'd win the case, they had ample opportunity to fight it in court, but they chose not to. Instead, they paid for people's silence behind closed doors and gaslit the public with statements about their innocence. 
Cultural studies professor Naveen Joshi explained to the Washington Post how gaslighting in these scenarios can be even more dangerous and disorienting to society than we realize. He said, quote, It speaks to how helpless we are when we're screaming for information and we don't know whether it's true or not. As we discussed, Bear purposely withheld, distorted, or made information sparse for years. By avoiding a public trial, they were able to maintain a level of discretion only available to those who can afford it. The flow of information between the public, the media, and the institutions that shape and govern our lives can be incredibly murky, and it's ever-changing. Which brings us to one of the most egregious conspiracies of recent history. Through declassified CIA documents, we now know that government-sanctioned chemists engaged in experimental tests on unwitting participants, all in an effort to control the human mind. The project's name was MKUltra. We've covered MKUltra at length on this show, but it's worth discussing in this context. The CIA's experiment is one of the clearest examples of a powerful entity bending and misconstruing facts, then claiming their actions were done for some greater good. In short, the project was commissioned by the CIA in the early 1950s. Initially, its mission was to develop mind control techniques to interrogate Soviet spies, with an end goal of eradicating communism. But the scope of MKUltra quickly spiraled. It grew to include some 149 experimental sub-projects at prisons, universities, and research facilities worldwide in the United States, Germany, Japan, and the Philippines. At the behest of the project's director, Sidney Gottlieb, hallucinogenic drugs were tested on patients to see how they reacted. A small group of these people were fine with the experimentation and even spoke positively of their experiences, artists like Allen Ginsberg and Ken Kesey. But as writer Mallory Yates found in her reporting, other participants were tortured with high-voltage electroshock therapy, weeks-long drug-induced sleep, and large doses of LSD. These patients were haunted and traumatized for years to come. Yates explains that, quote, survivors of the project and their families were forever changed by the lasting effects of this traumatic project, end quote. MKUltra was done almost completely in secret. No one outside the project's facilitators and participants knew about the experiments. The entire thing was classified until 1977. In fact, the United States Congress didn't even know about it. Congress only became aware of the project due to the investigative reporting of journalists like Seymour Hersh. His story for the New York Times in 1974 opened up a trove of questions about the CIA's illegal spying on American citizens, which eventually led to the unveiling of MKUltra. In 1975, three different government committees launched investigations into the CIA's illegal behavior. The subsequent hearings evaluated the CIA's actions to the best of their ability, which was extremely difficult given the fact that in 1973, the former director of the CIA, Richard Helms, ordered the destruction of MKUltra's paper trail. 
Still, the committees gathered enough evidence to conclude there were widespread and serious issues with MKUltra. As the New York Times reported in September of 1977, none represented a greater potential abuse of government authority or medical ethics than the agency's testing of LSD-25 and other psychochemicals on unsuspecting subjects. Despite all of this evidence and the conclusion of the Senate's committee that the CIA had abused its power in this instance, there weren't repercussions for the agency. In fact, institutions that had helped fund or facilitate MKUltra, both in the U.S. and Canada, were largely left off the hook. One investigation by the Canadian Broadcasting Company found that nine patients of Montreal-based MKUltra doctor Ewan Cameron sued the CIA in the U.S. in the 1980s for their treatment as part of MKUltra. It was settled out of court in 1988, and they received compensation, but the CIA did not accept any liability. Did not accept any liability. We've heard variations of that phrase over the course of this episode. Bayer accepted no responsibility. During Prohibition, the Treasury wouldn't be held accountable. Asbestos corporations claimed they couldn't be held liable. In response to the victims, journalists, and whistleblowers who spoke out and confronted these conspiracies, the institutions in question failed to take ownership of their actions. Instead, they employed gaslighting, denial, and other tactics as a way to avoid blame and discredit real, valid evidence. So, what can we glean about conspiracies from these tragic examples, other than the fact that they were true? It's clear that, in some cases, conspiracies do exist right under our noses, and that verifiable conspiracies are verifiable because they are grounded in facts, even if it takes a while to flush them out. Harmful toxins, disease-carrying blood, a plot to poison alcohol. Today, these conspiracies are all considered true, and they came to light not because of flights of imagination and conjecture, but because actual proof, testimonies, and paper trails trickled out. In light of this, we should continue to evaluate institutions through the lens of fact-based evidence and claims. We should follow reporting to its source, and in the process, we should be aware of our potential bias. All these factors can lead to better perception and more honest opinions. With a little bit of due diligence and self-awareness, we can choose to be truly vigilant. We've spent this whole episode talking about facts, so we'd love to add, it's okay to have questions about COVID-19 vaccines. Should I get it? Should I wait? Is it safe? Find trusted answers. Visit getvaccineanswers.org so that you can make an informed decision when COVID-19 vaccines are available to you. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. 
And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Anya Bailey and research by Chelsea Wood. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new podcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.